ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to Breakdown, Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. There's no way. I'm an ex-military man, and there's no way that I could identify who that is. Right. Impossible. Impossible. My dad was on his knees, and he was saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with my family? The fire was everywhere. It's very convincing, and it's just very clear uh, indications that he had no involvement in the fire. I'm convinced he had nothing to do with the the, uh, murder and the fire, the arson. Welcome to Episode 4. In Episode 3, Justin Chapman had lost his trial and then his appeal, and the public defender who lost his case was searching desperately for a new lawyer to give him one last shot at freedom. Right at the end of Episode 3, she found one, from a most unlikely source. She walked right up to the guy who was suing her own agency, the state's public defender system. She asked, Would you take Justin Chapman's case? The public defender's name was Jan Hankins. The new lawyer's name, Mike Kaplan. You may also recall what Hankin said when Kaplan asked her about Chapman's innocence. Kaplan remembers it the same way. So I said, tell me one thing. And you said that you believed he was innocent on a scale of 1 to 10. How firm are you in your belief? And Jan said, 11. And that's what really made me think long and hard about, you know, reviewing this case very carefully, because it's not every day that you have a lawyer of Jan's experience, uh, and she had been practicing law at that time, I think, for uh, over 10 years, come to you and say that this man, uh, his, his case has fallen through the cracks. Kaplan was an associate at the Atlanta law firm Bondurant, Mixon, and Elmore. He didn't specialize in getting criminals out of prison. In fact, he specializes in business litigation. Kaplan is a dedicated lawyer who knows that the legal system marches at its own pace. Earlier this year, he spent the night at the hospital for the delivery of his third child and then went downtown to argue a case. Shortly after dawn, he called the courthouse where he was supposed to appear that very morning. We had a baby in the middle of the night, he said. Then the clerk agreed to move his case from first to last on the calendar. Kaplan changed into a fresh suit in the hospital parking lot, then drove downtown. The three federal judges who'd been told about the new baby took notice when the sleepless, unshaven Kaplan walked into the courtroom. It's unbelievable he's here. (laughs) That's him? Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Kaplan, before we start your time running, um, 
Congratulations. The clerk has informed us of the events of the last few hours. Uh, does she have a name? Her name is Eva Brooke Kaplan. I think Judge Marino wants to give you a round of applause. Yes, I do. <laughs> You're not passing out cigars or anything, huh? Joking, Kaplan says he even thought about that on the ride to the courthouse. <laughs> Is your wife as happy about your being here as we, <laughs> as we all are? Kaplan said his wife, Anna, was very supportive. What, what was the time of birth? Uh, 4.46. Are you you ready? (laughs) I am ready. Thank you, Judge. My name is Mike Kaplan. I represent the petitioner, Eugene French. The district court in this case began... When Hankins asked Kaplan in 2012 to take Chapman's case, Kaplan already had a full plate at work, and he and Anna had just had their first child. So he went looking for some help. He turned to a fellow associate at the Bondurant firm, John Raines, who also specializes in business litigation. Raines immediately accepted the invitation to look into Chapman's case. The two men then spent a weekend reading over the transcript of the trial. Raines said it didn't take him long to drive a truck through the holes in the case. I was struck time and time again in reading the transcript with both how thin the prosecution's case against Justin was and also how many sort of just gaping holes there were in the cross-examination that made me wonder what had actually gone on at Justin's trial. Kaplan and Raines then decided it was time for a road trip. So then we wanted to meet Justin and see what he was like uh, because we had been told by Jan that she was firmly convinced that Justin was innocent, so we wanted to go meet him. And so Mike and I drove down uh, to Telfair State Prison and we met with him, and I think we were both struck uh, by his character Uh, We both felt like what he was telling us was true and what he was telling us that he had not committed this crime. I remember in the car ride back, us deciding we got to take this case. We should take this case. But they couldn't just take the case. They were highly paid lawyers at a top flight Atlanta firm. They had to get permission from the firm to spend days, weeks, months working on a case for nothing. After we came back from this meeting uh, at Telfair, Mike and I went to see Emmett Bondurant, the senior founding partner at the firm I work at now and where Mike worked at the time. And we met with Mr. Bondurant and we told him about the case, our impressions of Justin from having met him, uh, what Jan had told us about Justin's innocence. uh, And we shared with Mr. Bondurant some of the things we had seen in reading the transcript And we said to him, this is a case we both think is important. We want to work on this case. We're committed to this case. Will the firm let us pursue it? Atlanta is brimming with big-shot lawyers. They're everywhere. Downtown, Midtown, Buckhead, Marietta. But a few legal titans stand alone, even in this crowd. Emmett Bondurant, he's one of them. I caught up with Bondurant almost 40 stories above the streets of Midtown. He's a liberal lion who comes down on the left side of most issues. But he's a lib who also represents huge corporations. One leading national legal publication once named him the Lawyer of the Year for Antitrust and Bet the Company litigation. The National Law Journal says he's one of the top ten trial lawyers in America. He's made a fortune in the legal profession, but he's always taken on pro bono work. That's free legal representation for people who cannot afford their own lawyer. Bondurant founded his law firm in 1977. It now has about 30 attorneys. More than five decades ago, as a first-year associate at another Atlanta law firm, 
Bondurant agreed to take on three cases on behalf of, as he puts it, residents of the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. By the end of my first year of practice, I'd argued three cases in the Federal Court of Appeals when many partners of that firm had never argued a case in the Court of Appeals and years ahead of other contemporaries. So part of it was professional, but part of it was these people needed a lawyer and they had a case to argue, and I, that was the business I was in. And uh, so I, I wanted to do it. So as luck turned out, I won all three cases, which gets you a lot of prison mail. Some attorneys think it's time to call it a day after they've billed as many hours as possible to a deep-pocketed client. You'll find these lawyers at five-star restaurants or perhaps skiing the slopes at Telluride, but you won't find them taking on pro bono work. That's not Bondurant. I view those cases as my playtime. Other people play golf, and I take those cases because they're more interesting to me than the way I play golf. But there are also people who really need good lawyers, and they frequently involve issues that are important enough that you feel either as a matter of justice or whatever, that you really want to litigate that issue out. Bondurant said he still appreciates the fact that his law firm way back then gave him the freedom to take on such cases. But that also didn't mean the firm lightened the load of the cases he was assigned to handle for paying clients. An excellent firm with really great lawyers, but it was a sweatshop without any question. You work from 8 until 7.30 at night, during the week, and you work most Saturdays, and I work one out of three Sundays. And then any of these other cases I did were nights and weekends after that on top of that work. But that was my playtime. When Mike Kaplan and John Raines asked Bondurant if they could take on Justin Chapman's case, Bondurant had one overarching question. How strongly did they feel about it? Raines and Kaplan told Bondurant they were totally committed to it. And his answer to that was an enthusiastic yes. Uh, he was all for us taking the case. He encouraged us to do it, and he, he stood behind us uh, both as we invested time pursuing the case and also uh, invested the firm's resources in, in doing what needed to be done to investigate the case and bring it. If you'd like to see a video of Reigns and Kaplan, please go to ajcbreakdown.com. With Bondurant now on board, the two lawyers went about building a team. They would get two paralegals hire three investigators, and recruit a highly experienced criminal defense attorney to the cause. And Chapman, he wasn't paying them a dime. Now it's time for a Latin lesson. Habeas corpus literally means you have the body. But what it comes down to is a civil action in which you claim that the body that's in prison, Chapman's body in this case, doesn't belong there. This civil lawsuit called the Great Writ dates back centuries to English common law. The lawsuit must be filed in the county where the inmate is imprisoned. In this case, Telfair County, about 160 miles south of Atlanta. Kaplan and Raines filed their writ of habeas corpus in 2013. Their object? Win Chapman a new trial. To prevail, Kaplan and Raines had to rebuild Chapman's case from the ground up. They had to see things that the trial attorney Jan Hankins had not seen. They had to learn things that had gone undiscovered, and they had to show that Justin Chapman had been ridden out of Bremen on a rail. To do that, they hired veteran investigator Deborah Mulder to ferret out every shred of evidence in the police and fire department files. The stuff Mulder found had the potential to change everything for Justin Chapman. Then, in the mountains of North Carolina, Kaplan stumbled upon a man who would become a key member of the defense team. 
Kaplan and a college buddy, Gary Sendel, had gone camping in the Smokies and were staying at a cabin that Sendel's father had built himself. Danny Sendel, the dad, was a lifelong FBI agent, now retired. A lot of people fall in love with the mountains of western North Carolina, and Sendel did too, but he took a most unusual route. As an FBI agent, Sendel tracked Eric Robert Rudolph throughout those mountains. Rudolph had bombed two abortion clinics, a lesbian nightclub, and, of course, Centennial Olympic Park. He was finally caught in North Carolina, and sometime during that manhunt, Sendel decided he wanted to live in those very mountains. So, in the fall of 2012, Danny's son Gary and Mike Kaplan stopped at Danny's cabin before they went camping in the mountains. Sendel remembers it this way. And we were talking over a couple of beers um, down by my fire pit that evening that they arrived. And uh, he wanted to know what I was doing. Well, I just finished this cabin and uh, wasn't doing really much as far as earning any money. But uh, I was always interested uh, in uh, working the Innocence Project, where indigent uh, subjects were accused of doing something that they were convicted of and maybe they didn't get a fair trial. He said, that's interesting because I, I have a case like that right now. I said, really? He said, would you be interested in looking at it? I said, do you think he's innocent? He says, yes, I think he's absolutely innocent. I said, well, let me take a look at it. Sendel read through the trial transcripts page by page. It turns out he arrived at a completely different conclusion than Kaplan and Rains. I thought that the prosecutor did a good job. I thought the defense attorney uh, was right on the money with the questions that uh, she had asked. There's nothing wrong with the way this verdict was rendered. Sendel then drove to the Bondurant offices where the two young lawyers were eager to see him. You could tell they were anxious to uh, hear what my take on it was. He says, what do you think? I said, well, I think he's guilty. And I saw the look on John uh, Raines' face. I thought he was going to kick me out of his office. And Mike is kind of like the, uh, the peacemaker. He says, well, well, why do you think that? Why do you think this? So I explained to him, and uh, I said, I don't think I can help you in this case. You don't want to hire me. But Sendel volunteered to take one final step. He would drive down to Telfair State Prison, meet Chapman, and take his measure of the man. Sendel met with Chapman in a room near the warden's office. They talked for five and a half hours. We started talking, and he told me about the fight that he had the night prior to uh, the fire. He told me about uh, packing up the kids and his wife and going to the Hughes' residence. Uh, he told me about returning to his residence because he thought something may happen to his possessions inside his, his apartment. And he said once he arrived there, there were police cars and fire trucks on his block. We started talking about his drug activities, and he was very candid with me about his drug use. Apparently, he gotten into an accident when uh, on his job when he was younger, and he started taking pain pills, which progressed to him using uh, stronger drugs. And the stronger drugs didn't work, which required him to take even stronger drugs, and then he got into meth. I said to myself, why is he telling us all this? He's very, very honest. So maybe he didn't do this. So it caused how, me to how, go back. How adamant was he that he didn't do it? Oh, he was extremely adamant, which... Uh, you know, everyone in prison is, is innocent, you know, uh, or so they say. Sendel drove back to Atlanta, not totally convinced of Chapman's innocence, but in a different frame of mind. Kaplan and Rain suggested that he now read the entire case file, thousands of pages. So he did. And then the case that fits so neatly together was suddenly falling apart. When I read the case file and when I read what the police had investigated and reported, 
And when I read about the testimony provided by uh, the witnesses on the prosecution side and the questions by the defense attorney during cross-examination, I, I began to wonder, why didn't she ask him this? Why didn't she ask him that? At this point, I was in because I was curious as anybody whether this guy was guilty or not. After reading the case file, I, I thought there's no way that this guy got a fair trial. But Sindel had a problem. He didn't have a private investigator's license. But he knew someone who did. Enter John and Sonia, another retired FBI agent. He was licensed. I went to John because I work drugs with John, and uh, we work well together, and he's honest and a uh, good investigator. I thought he would uh, get a big kick out of uh, working a, a case that was very similar to cases that we were working together in the FBI. This is criminal investigations. It's, it's not uh, doing background investigations or following a divorcee. Uh, you know, this is, this is real stuff, and it affects the lives of not only the person that's been accused, but it affects his family. Uh, and it affects the family of the, of, of the deceased, too. Here's Insonia. It certainly was going to be a uh, change of pace for us because for both our bureau careers, we spent our whole careers trying to put people in jail. And this was kind of a turn of events. We're going to try and get a guy out of jail. But for me and for Danny also, uh, the bottom line was fairness. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards... Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Now there's something you need to understand about Sindel and Insonia. They were FBI agents for decades. They're well-educated and well-spoken. In fact, Sindel is well-spoken in three languages. But they're also badasses. In addition to investigations, both worked in SWAT. They actually first began working together in 1987, when Cuban inmates took over the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. Most of the Cubans had come to the U.S. during the Marielle boat lift of 1980. Some had committed crimes after arriving here. Others had criminal records in Cuba. On November 20, 1987, the State Department announced an agreement with the Fidel Castro regime to deport 2,500 Cubans being held in federal lockups. Three days later, Cubans at the Atlanta Federal Pen staged a revolt. They took 100 hostages and set part of the prison on fire. They held the penitentiary for 11 days. At the time, Sindelin and Sonia were both in Special Weapons and Tactics, also known as SWAT. They were among the first federal agents to arrive at the scene. The place was ablaze. Uh, I mean, it looked like a war zone. We had no idea what was going on, how many inmates were involved in the rioting, how many hostages they had, how many weapons they had, or what kind of weapons did they have. And so as we assembled, uh, our SWAT team leader, uh, his name was Leon Blakeney, uh, he was a good old Texas boy, and he says, boys, put your 
and we're going in there. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is, this is going to be it. This will be my last day. And Sonia then armed himself to the teeth, maybe even to the gums. So I, uh, I strapped a little 38 snub nose. I strapped that in an ankle holster to my ankle. I had a, a bulletproof vest that had a holster in it. So I put my 9 millimeter in the holster, and I grabbed a, a, a Remington 870 pump shotgun, and I filled all my pockets with guns and ammo. You know, I said, man, I'm not going to run out of guns or ammo if we go in there. And Sonia recalls a very tense first night. Where we were in the catacombs, right across the courtyard, which was only maybe about 15 feet away, we could see and hear the inmates. Uh, they had apparently got their hands on a, a grinding wheel of some sort, and they, they were dismantling the, the iron beds, and we could see them sharpening knives, uh, making swords about, you know, three feet long, and, or, and then making spears out of the long pieces of the bed framing. And, and then they were ripping the, the, the linen from the beds, the sheeting, and, and the strips, and they were tying the knives and the swords to their hands. So if they got into, a, you know, a fight, they would not lose, you know, lose grip of, the, of their knife or the, or the sword. So, and that's how we spent our whole first night there. And Sonia and Sendel both remember a certain inmate who had achieved almost mythic status. The Bureau of Prisons had issued warnings about him. The other inmates were frightened of him. They were talking about terrible Tommy Silverstein. He was a one-time leader of the white prison gang Aryan Brotherhood. He was arrested for robberies he pulled with his father. Then he was convicted of three murders while he was in prison. The first two were black inmates. The last was a guard Silverstein stabbed 40 times. Silverstein is tall, as big as six foot three, and he's strong. According to one report, he does a thousand push-ups and 2,000 sit-ups a day. He's been in solitary confinement now for 27 years, believed to be longer than any other prisoner in America. And he spends his days alone at the Federal Supermax Prison in Colorado with virtually no human contact. We found there was an inmate out there at the penitentiary and Silverstein. who had been transferred from Ohio prison because he had killed a guard up there. And he was ranked as one of the top, most dangerous, five top dangerous uh, inmates in the federal system. And, of course, we, hadn't, we didn't know anything about him at all. But the guards, as we were getting ready, to, trying to make an entry into the on standby, they told the guards told us, if you see this guy Silverstein, shoot him on sight because if he gets within thirty feet of you, you're dead. Because he was a, a martial arts expert and he's just a very dangerous, dangerous guy. Uh, and then what we found out is during the, the the siege lasted about twelve days that he had gotten out of his cell and he was leading his own little gang of guys. And at one time, we found out later he tried to build. Uh, an ultralight uh, airplane using the nylon material, and they actually found some kind of a little motor in there. Uh, that didn't work. And then he tried to tunnel his way out under the wall, and that didn't work. And then eventually the Cubans realized that this guy was such a, a liability, and uh, they couldn't control him. And so I think they... They, they drugged him. They drugged him. And they they put him in a wheelchair, and they they handcuffed him to the wheelchair, and then there was like a, a no man zone 
where the uh, our negotiators, hostage negotiators, would meet their negotiators. They had put them in a wheelchair. They brought them down to this no man's land, and they go, "Here, he's yours." Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they, oh yeah, they want to get rid. Of him. He was too dangerous. I mean, he he was uncontrollable. All told, Sindelin and Sonia spent twelve days at the penitentiary before a truce was negotiated. Only one person, an inmate, was killed during the uprising. We spent Thanksgiving yeah. um, at the penitentiary, and I had just arrived in Atlanta. So I was bringing a, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-year-old. We had just enrolled them in school. We didn't have Thanksgiving dinner because I was at the penitentiary. Why would my wife make a big turkey for just three kids that didn't like turkey anyway? So that Monday, they asked little Stevie, who was my middle child, what, uh, what they had for Thanksgiving dinner. And Stevie said, fish sticks. <laughs> so from that point on, he got free lunches because they felt sorry for him. Sendelin and Sonia are old friends who love working cases together, almost as much as they enjoy picking at each other. I just wish I had hired someone else other than John. <laughs> well, see, I had to drive him. Or he'd get lost. You see, he needs adult supervision. The two old buddies followed very different paths to the FBI. Sendel says he wanted to become an agent ever since he was a little kid. He grew up in Washington. Some of his friend's fathers were FBI agents. Sendel says he went to the Bureau when he was a teenager and asked a guy in the personnel department, a guy named Miller, what he should study in college to make him more useful to the Bureau. The guy said, learn French. Take as many courses in French as you can. I uh, applied to a French institute in Paris and... Uh... I got accepted, and they, uh, they arranged for me to live with the family for six months. But right before I left, I wanted to go see Mr. Miller again to tell him what I was going to do and that uh, I'd be coming back within a year, hopefully be fluent in French and take the test and get in. Well, Mr. Miller wasn't there. So I spoke to uh, Mr. Dawson, Bill Dawson. And uh, he looked me right in the eye, and he said, Danny, I hate to tell you this, but we haven't had a need for French-speaking agents since 1963. So I said to myself, well, screw the Bureau. I put so much time and effort into this. I'm going over anyway. So I was working construction during the summer months, and I hopped on a plane in September, and I went over to Paris, and I stayed for one full year. Came back to see Mr. Dawson, and Mr. Dawson said, you know, I can't really do anything for you, but why don't you study Spanish? Now that he was fluent in French, Sindel needed to become fluent in Spanish, too. So off he went to Cordoba for a year, studying Spanish and playing rugby for the university team. Rugby. I told you this guy was a badass. This time, when he got back to the States, the Bureau was ready for him. He spent the next 12 years at the FBI field office in New York City, often investigating bank robberies. He was then transferred to Atlanta in 1987. John and Sonia, who grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut, had never imagined himself in the FBI. After... I got out of college and came home from active duty in the Army, uh, getting married. I took the first job I could get, and it turned out I didn't like it at all. I was a buyer for a jet engine builder in Connecticut, Pratt & Whitney Aircraft, and uh, I had done that for, you know, three years, and I, I wasn't happy doing that. So one night he's talking to a neighbor who happened to mention that an FBI agent had come by his office that day. Maybe you should think about a career in the Bureau, the neighbor said. And then this opportunity to join the FBI came up, and uh, I never considered a career in law enforcement or the FBI, but I was young, 
we didn't have any children at the time. And this was like, hey, this is an adventure. Sounds like a cool job. So I went ahead and applied for it. And Sonia remembers the peculiar circumstances of taking his test to join the Bureau. Uh, the main office for the FBI in Connecticut is located in New Haven, Connecticut. So I had to drive down there and uh, take the test. And uh, when I got there, they put me in a little interview room uh, by myself. An FBI agent sat in the next room. He was dictating reports on his corruption investigation. It involved in Sonia's hometown. I could overhear him. So here I am. I got one ear listening to what he's saying, and I'm trying to concentrate on taking this test, you know. So my attention was split, and it seemed like it took all day. And I remember walking out of there, and when I got home, my wife asked me how I did, and I go, well, I forgot about that career. <laughs> it never got launched, you know. I didn't think I did very well. As it turned out, and Sonia got the job. He joined the Bureau at a time when its longtime director, J. Edgar Hoover, was still in charge. And Sonia remembers one of Hoover's many quirks. Hoover always wanted to say, uh, he had met every FBI agent. So in classes prior to my new agent's training class, uh, the custom was that uh, they would bring all the new agent trainees up to the director's office and, and meet him and shake his hand. Well, it was a very choreographed, scripted event, and it was high risk also. Uh, they would line up all the new agent trainees in the hallway outside his door, and you had class counselors. And they would stand there with a towel and talcum powder and dry the new agent trainee's hands because Hoover never wanted to shake a sweaty palm. And Sonia had already made sure to shave his mustache before officially signing on with the Bureau. That was another one of Hoover's pet peeves. No facial hair. And Sonia would be assigned to the Detroit Bureau. He went after the mafia. He tracked mob bosses, leg breakers. He was also the case agent for one of the last people to ever see Jimmy Hoffa alive. And Sonia worked the Detroit Bureau for about 15 years before being transferred to Atlanta. After coming to Atlanta in 1987, Sendelin and Sonia worked drug cases together. Then there was the Olympic Park bombing in 1996. I had just finished up a big drug case, uh, and I wanted to get back to the bank robbery squad. It was approved, but there was a 90-day window. I just didn't want to just sit around. And uh, the bombing at uh, Centennial Olympic Park occurred, and uh, I kind of volunteered. And uh, in those 90 days, I, I kind of got hooked. I wanted to continue working on the case. Sendel would stay on the case for the next six years. After the bombing of a Birmingham abortion clinic, a college student noticed that everyone was walking toward the sound of the explosion. Everyone but one guy, that is. One guy who was studiously walking away from it. The student followed. And after the guy got into a pickup truck and drove away, the student followed, got the license number, and called 911. It was traced back to Henderson, North Carolina. It turned out to be uh, Eric Robert Rudolph's mother. And that's where it, it all began. We got our break in the case. That was the break in the case that we needed. Up until that time, we had no idea who this person was. We had suspects coming out of the uh, cracks in the wall uh, that we tried to convince ourselves that they had something to do with just to keep us sane. And after we washed them out, this bombing occurred, and now we had something that we could sink our teeth in. So we basically migrated up to Murphy, North Carolina, set up a command post, and we started looking at him very closely. We just wanted to talk to him, but by the time uh, we got up there, um, he had already gone in the woods. 
So Sindel and his team went into the woods after him. And from that point, I was in the woods. We were able to get help from trackers from the uh, Park Service and from the Forest Service. And uh, I kind of provided security among uh, our group of guys that went in with uh, these trackers just to make sure that uh, he didn't get the first shot. And if he did get shot, that we'd be right there with him. So I followed this guy for a period of six months, almost almost nine months, as as did the other teams that came in. We, we were broken up into four or five-man teams. We had a tracker, and we had uh, a, a SWAT force of, of four or five guys with him. Um, we thought that we would, would, you know, if we encountered Rudolph, that we would be able to return fire. We were like a, a pack of hounds in, in the woods. Now, back to Justin Chapman's case. Interestingly, Sendelin and Sonia don't exactly agree on every aspect of it, but they agree on this. Jan Hankins, Chapman's public defender, did a less than stellar job in his defense. If she had more time and probably had, and if the state had more money to invest in hiring uh, investigators to help the uh, defense attorney out, then maybe uh, the outcomes would be a little bit more fair. Uh, this guy definitely uh, went to trial way too early without enough cooperating evidence to prove that he had done this murder. I think uh, the defense attorney was not prepared, uh, whether because she was inundated with other cases. The state didn't provide enough money for her to hire uh, investigators to thoroughly investigate the case and re-interview the witnesses that they were going to be using in trial. And uh, as a result, uh, it opened my eyes about what exists in this state as far as people who can't afford attorneys. Here's Insonia. What I got out of this whole deal was that this was a, a complete breakdown of the judicial system on all levels. I think the, the police, uh, the investigators, did a terrible job in preparing this case, uh, investigating the crime itself. Uh, to me, it seemed like they focused in on, on, on Chapman right away, and they didn't take their eyes off of him, and regardless of what else was out there, that's all where they were willing to go look at. I think the prosecutor did not do a very good job, and some some of the things he did are very questionable. Uh, And these are the things that Danny and I were able to uncover that uh, really shone some light on on what he had done or what he didn't do. Uh, The uh, defense attorney... Uh, like Danny said, very capable, competent attorney, but she was overwhelmed by the whole the whole matter. I think she was intimidated by the judge. The judge granted her one continuance and told her that was it. You can't come back in here again. And she was afraid uh, that she would lose her job if this judge complained about her. The uh, public defender's office was a failure. They didn't have, like Dan said, they didn't have enough money to hire investigators. Uh, And it really shows the financial injustices in our judicial system. Had Chapman and his family had the resources to hire, you know, a private attorney who was able to hire a couple investigators like Danny and I, they would have uncovered all of this stuff. And we wouldn't be here today. It took a well-oiled, experienced legal team to uncover critical new evidence in Chapman's case. But Chapman didn't have such a team before he went to trial. He had one overworked public defender and a part-time investigator. To win a new trial, Mike Kaplan and John Raines needed a couple of major breaks. They need to find compelling new evidence that would catch the attention of a judge who knew absolutely nothing about the case. And they would certainly find that. 
on the next episode of Breakdown, what the jury didn't hear at Justin Chapman's trial. So the next morning's when they, the attorney come and met with me. And that's when I learned that Joseph White said that I was, you know, at a prayer session with him and Chapman, that I heard this conversation that he also heard, you know, his thoughts. And I told the district attorney that. I didn't know what they were talking about. Please go to ajcbreakdown.com for photos of the cast of characters, a timeline, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capaluto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Bert Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.